0: All four Sundays of Advent, we've looked at the four Gospels and the beginning of those stories to prepare ourselves for the coming of Jesus Christ and celebrating Christmas. And today we're looking at the fourth Gospel, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. You can follow along on the screens in front of you, or you can pull out your own Bible or an app on your phone if you want to read it that way. Feel free to do in whatever way feels best to you right now. Listen to God's Word. yet the world did not know him. He came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. This is the gift of God's word. Thanks be to God. Join me in a word of prayer. Let's pray together. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight. The Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Why a fourth gospel? Why does John need to write another gospel? Most scholars think that John wrote his gospel maybe 80, 90, 100 years after Jesus' death. So a long, long, long time after Jesus was alive, John wrote his gospel. Why another gospel? Certainly, John's community must have had some parts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and if they didn't even have the written text, perhaps they had all the oral traditions and the oral stories that were passed on from generation to generation to generation about Jesus. So, why another gospel? Why write another gospel so many years later? Well, I think you can begin to just get a sense or a clue of why John writes his gospel in this first chapter. Maybe you could feel it a couple of times in some of the sentences that John writes, where John says that he came into the world, but the world did not know him. He came to his own people, but his own people rejected him. Could you feel that just a little bit in that sentence, that there was tension going on? A lot of scholars think that this is precisely why John writes his gospel, because in John's time, so many years after Jesus was alive, there was an incredible amount of tension and infighting within the religious community itself that the people of God and those who followed after Jesus were fighting amongst each other. The Pharisees had risen to power, and there was a great deal of infighting that was taking place now within the religious community. And not just that, but there was persecution from the world on this community of faith from the Roman Empire. And so John writes... John's gospel, as a result of the conflict and the infighting within their community, so as to bring clarity to who Jesus is in the midst of this fighting that's taking place. You could even tell a little bit of that infighting in John's words, too, at the end of what I read to you. Much of what Matthew has to say about Moses is that Jesus is sort of like a new Moses. But here Moses is contrasted with Jesus, is almost lesser than you could feel that tension and the infighting in the introduction to John's gospel. I've been doing a lot of reflecting myself over about the past year, about 2020. And I wonder if you have been wondering and reflecting back on this year as well. And one of the things that I've been reflecting on in this past year is that one of the things I've wrestled with, and I've shared this with a few people, is that it's been so hard to talk about what feels like really divisive issues in our life over the last year. To talk and have a conversation with somebody about politics can feel so difficult and so divisive. And so for much of this past year, I actually have just not engaged in those kinds of conversations. And instead, I've just tried to do some soul searching and some learning. Like, why does this feel different? Does it feel different? Has this been amplified this past year in such a way that It's made me just want to pull myself away instead of engaging and having conversation with people about what feels like more divisive and difficult things. And so as a part of my own efforts to learn more about this, I've stumbled my way through a few books and a few resources and a few podcasts. And I found this podcast that was created by a nonprofit here in Silicon Valley. It's called the Center for Humane Technology. They made a documentary on Netflix. It's called The Social Dilemma. Maybe some of you have heard about it. And it's very popular. I think 100 million people have watched it. So maybe one-third of Americans have watched it now on Netflix. And the documentary talks about where we are today as a people and a world and our consumption of social media. And I was really interested in that documentary, but especially in the podcasts that they made. In the very first podcast episode, uh, they interview a sociologist. And the sociologist they interviewed spent 10 years researching casinos. And she gives great detail about her research in this podcast episode, and I thought it was very interesting for a variety of reasons. But she talked about how when you enter into a casino, I I don't know if any of you have been in a casino lately, but when you enter into a casino, there's no sort of square edges. It's very confusing. It feels like a labyrinth to some extent, or a maze. you, You get stuck inside of there. And then you end up in front of a slot machine, a coin slot machine, and they say this. She said that casinos try to design and have you get in front of these machines, and they try to do four things. This is by complete intention and architecture and design to have you do these four things when you're in front of these machines. They want to get you alone in front of the machines, by yourself, in solitude with these machines. And then when you're alone, they want to try to give you immediate feedback. So when you touch these screens and you play the games, you keep clicking the button and it just keeps going, 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 going. Immediate feedback. There's something about humans that love that immediate feedback, right? Not having to wait for things, but just click, click, click. And then the third thing they try to do when they put you in front of these machines is they give you random rewards. It's been proven by psychologists for many years that humans are just addicted to random rewards. (laughs) We just want to hope. that It's that next try. It's that next try. It's that... Next lottery ticket I buy, that's going to be the one that wins, right? Like there's something about our human just brainstem that just longs for random rewards. We love it. And they design the systems to give you random rewards so that you spike, you hit one time. And then they also design it so that when you bet $2 on this machine, instead of saying you lost 30 cents, they say you won $1.70. Congratulations. And over time, eventually, you run out of money, even though you're hooked because of these first three things. And then the fourth thing they want to try to do as they put you in this scenario when you're in front of the slot coin machine is that they want to try to do solitude, fast feedback, and they want to do random rewards. And my memory just blanked on the fourth one. (laughs) Oh, no, that's horrible. I'm sorry. Um, I'll remember it later on in the sermon, and I'll remember. But they say that this, and this sociologist talked about this being... She calls it the ludic loop, the ludic loop. Oh, I remember now, thank you. Now that I said it out loud, I remember. The fourth thing is that it's, there's no resolution. There's not a normal narrative arc or a storyline to this gaming machine. It just can go in perpetuity. You could sit there forever. These four things are made up and they're called the ludic loop. And she said, this technology, this, this design for these casino machines has been woven and built into our larger consumption of technology and social media over the last few years. When I was talking to some middle schoolers a year ago, they were telling me about this new sweet video game on their phones that was about like building a cookie kingdom. And they said, what you do is you hit the cookies as fast as you possibly can. And if you hit them enough fast, then you get a new variety of cookies when you get to the next level. And then you can build like new bakeries and new bakeries and new cookies and more bakeries. And all of a sudden, you're just like hooked on this video game because you're by yourself fast feedback there's random rewards built into it and there's no resolution it's not actually a story or a narrative or an arc there's no way to stop you just keep going now in and of itself the concept of what this person was talking about the ludic loop like this cookie video game right it can feel like well whatever who cares right it's not that big of a deal but really the point of doing this is that it would extract our attention it would extract our human attention, using these deep and powerful psychological tools to get us sucked into it and frankly get us addicted. And then once we're addicted and we're sucked in and we had our attention extracted, you know what happens next. You know what happens next. We're hit with advertisements, right? And I want to be careful here because, look, our world here in Silicon Valley, like this is our economy. This is how we all make money. And even if we don't make money through this, Right, like this is how our economy works. This is the attention economy that we all live in. And once our attention has been extracted, then we're hit with these advertisements. And one thing they said on this podcast, and these, these guys said that I thought was also interesting, is it's not just they're trying to sell you a product, right? Like if you were to watch something on TV. But once they have your attention, they've extracted it, then they want to exploit and just shift slightly your behaviors, your beliefs, or your biases based on your psychological traits. Just, just slight shifts in those things. This is what they said. And they said that this is so powerful and persuasive that now basically like our behaviors, biases, and beliefs are up to the highest bidder. If somebody has enough money, they can shift these things in humans. Millions, millions, hundreds of millions, billions of people. It's deeply concerning and worrying because I think when I speak about this concept of the ludic loop, I bet you can imagine there is some way that you have engaged with that kind of behavior online, haven't you? Maybe right now, you know, and the thing and even the platform that we're using right now to have this worship service has been at times that thing that feels like non-resolution and you can be stuck on, right? I think there's deep worries here because it has led to powerful infighting so much infighting over the last year. And not just infighting, but different people have different kinds of information as a result to what's been shown to them when we've had our attention extracted and exploited. And it's meant that we can barely have conversations with each other. We just go straight to, well, I saw this thing and it said this thing, and I saw this thing and it said this thing. And and almost, it just feels like we have become, frankly, enslaved to misinformation and disinformation in the way that our attention has been extracted and exploited in these ways. And it's deeply worrisome and concerning, especially in the context of then when we go out to try to have relationship with each other, we basically operate from a level of infighting with one another and a suspicion of one another and their beliefs and their practices and where they got that information from. It's definitely concerning and worrying to me as I learned about these things. So why write John's gospel? Why write another gospel some 90 years later after Jesus was alive? Why write it? Well, John writes this letter because of that fighting that's taking place. But John's not writing it to try to prove his point over and against another. John's trying to bring clarity to who Jesus is. And not just Jesus, but God and God's self. I Think back to verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God was in the beginning with the Word. The eternal Word that was always alive, the second person of the triune God, takes on flesh and lives among us. See, within God's own self, there is community. God is community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as community, God wants to build community with God's people. And not just does God want to build community, but God looks at humanity and sees humanity as worth rescue, as worthy of rescue. And I think there's so much good news here in John chapter 1, right? Because think about for the people there that had all this fighting going on, the worries about persecution, they themselves were being exploited for a variety of different kinds of ways. And Jesus enters into their life, not to add to it, Not to add to the infighting, frankly, but to bring community to the people of God and to rescue them. Like God's intention and design in community God's self is to go and rescue the people of God. And that's what we hear about. Jesus took on flesh and lived among us. And it was in and through him that there is grace upon grace. There's really good news here in John chapter 1. This past week at our session meeting, which is our board of elders here at the church, uh, we meet once a month to discuss a variety of things. And at the end of the year, we reflect back on, and we gave thanks to each other for uh, just the different elders in the room who were leaving, who had been serving for three or four years in another case. And we just reflected on that time together. And we gave thanks for each of them and all of their things. And we lifted them up with words of affirmation And after we were sharing some stories about people, Pat Brown said in the middle of it, he said, this is incredible. He's like, we don't do this enough. Affirm each other and lift each other up. Like, I've heard stories today that I've never heard before about each and every one of you. And it's making me feel so connected to each other and to God. And we got an email from another elder the next day that said the exact same thing that they felt so connected to God the next day and to one another as we lifted up and as we affirmed one another in who we are. And I thought that was a fragrant and beautiful example, my friends, of when this God that we believe in, a God who is about building community and sees in humanity, a humanity that's worthy of rescue, that God will bring the spirit of wanting to join humans together in community too. And frankly, for us to find our ways through infighting so that we might see other humans as worthy of rescue and build community together, right? All the ways in which our attention's been extracted and the exploitation we feel, like God wants to bring community, to bring rescue, and frankly, to liberate us from that so that we can have this kind of honest and authentic and integrity and community as we live together like this in our lives, my friends. The word became flesh and lived among us. God did not just stay out there, but God becomes a human in Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and lived among us. As I've been reflecting on 2020, you know, this past year or two, and obviously there's a lot of ways that I'm worried and I'm concerned about the social media component, but when I reflect on the good things that have happened this last year and the ways in which God has been present in my life, I've been thinking about that verse. The word became flesh and lived among us. And, and as I was talking about it this week with our staff meeting, Kristen Verveniotis was mentioning how you know, she remembers the message version of this verse. And in the message it says, and the word became flesh and then God moved into the neighborhood. God moved into the neighborhood. And that's put a whole other framework for me together around on what it means for the God who wants to build community and sees within humanity as worthy of rescue. Because a year ago, I would not have known if God moved into my neighborhood. Just to be honest with you all, I think I myself was probably addicted to a variety of different kinds of technology and different things. And I was pretty absorbed into my own little world. I didn't have much of a mindset for the comings and goings and the people in my own neighborhood. I was just busy doing these things and these things and these things but this year has slowed me down a little bit, enough so that as I take my slow walks through the neighborhood, I've now met all of the neighbors in my neighborhood. I think I know all of them by name, and at least I have some sense of their comings and goings and who they are and and what's happening in their life, and they have some sense of that happening to me in my life. If God moved into my neighborhood today, I I would know that God moved into my neighborhood. I may not actually know God's name yet, maybe next week or the week after, but I would know that God moved into my neighborhood. And earlier this year, as I've been reflecting on this text, I've been thinking about one of those ways that I've seen God build community and rescue, frankly, through this idea of God moving into the neighborhood. happened back in April. In the weeks leading up to the birth of my son, can you remember what April was like? April was a scary time, right? It was right at the beginning of the pandemic. Nobody knew how this thing was transmitted. We were on shelter in place for the first time, not the second time. And you couldn't go anywhere, our family couldn't visit, and we desperately needed help and family to come visit during the time of the birth of a child. And we had we didn't know who to turn to, frankly. And one day, a couple of weeks before the birth of my son, I went to my neighbor's house and I knocked on her door, and I just talked to her and I said, "Hey, here's our like best case scenario plan for the birth of our child." but here's our not-so-best-case scenario for the birth of our child. And if that comes to pass, like, I might need to call on somebody to come over and take care of my two-year-old um, while I'm at the hospital with my wife. Like, Would you be willing to do that? You know, I, I had this huge ask of her, and it turned out a few weeks later that we ended up not having the very best-case scenario, but the not-so-best-case scenario, birth and labor and delivery, And I had to call my neighbor at 9 o'clock that night and say, I'm going to the hospital, and I need somebody to come over and take care of my two-year-old tonight. And it turned out the next day that I needed to ask her to do it again and again because my son was in the NICU for a few days, and I needed to be at the hospital. And she did it. She came over. It was the first human outside of my family that took care of my daughter, the first human outside of my wife and I that spent the night at my house to take care of my daughter. This incredible woman next door did this for us. And as I reflect on this year, I'll always carry that with me, that even in the midst of the hardships of this year, the infighting that we've experienced in social media and our relationships through technology, there has always been and carries with me this moment where here is this woman who, frankly for me, in my life, became that that God that moved into the neighborhood. You know, she's not God. That's not what I'm trying to say. But she embodied that spirit... Of building community and doing something frankly outlandish on behalf of me and my family to serve us and frankly to rescue me I just broke into tears that morning I came back because I didn't have words to say thank you to her all I had was the tears that I had I couldn't believe she did this for us I myself experienced that sense of being worthy of being rescued and this is the good news my friends in John chapter 1 God takes on flesh, lived among us, moves into the neighborhood. Because God wants us to build community, to get beyond the fighting, to find some way to see humanity and one another as worthy of rescue, as worthy of God entering into the world, and to bring life and to bring light into dark places, my friends. So perhaps as you reflect on 2020 this week and the coming of Christmas, Uh, Maybe you can just reflect on that. Where has God, the builder of community, been at work in my life? Where have I experienced that sense of myself, my community, my family, humans being worthy of rescue and praying about that and wondering about that so as to help you just celebrate more fully the coming of Jesus on Christmas this coming week. Perhaps we can do that together as a community somehow as well. The word became flesh and lived among us. Let's pray together. God, I give you thanks for who you are. And that even though humans fight with each other all the time, we are at war with one another, there you are, God. You're the prince of peace. And you come into our lives to help us build community with one another and with you. And you want to rescue us from ourselves, frankly, and you want to have us have the life that you have in and of yourself. And so, God, we give you thanks for who you are and for how you are growing us and leading us to being a people who build community and who see one another as worthy of rescue, as worthy of your love. Help us as we continue to prepare our hearts and our minds and our souls for the coming of Jesus at Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.